Well, if you don't know me yet, my name is Tim Pasma. I pastor LaRue Baptist Church. I think all of you know that. All of you were here last week, so I guess I don't have to go through all that. Um, so I've, I've uh, volunteered to teach Sunday school class, and what I'd like to do is to take you through the book of Mark. Um, and uh, maybe we'll get through it in the time that the Lord has allotted for me being here. I don't know, but we'll do our best. Uh, now, every... Um, you, I gave you notes so that you can take notes. That's just a skeleton outline. You can take notes on that, and, and hopefully that'll help you. You can keep those notes if you want. Um, and we're just going to work our way through. I doubt that we get through every lecture every week. I really doubt that. It's not, never worked before. Uh, so uh, we're just going to go through this. Now, originally, as I was, actually, I was assigned this, uh, the Synoptic Gospels in order uh, to teach overseas, and um, it boiled down to Mark. Um, so it's kind of like, all right, what are the Gospels, and let's see how it plays out in Mark. And so we want to gain a basic understanding of that. And, and uh, these three Gospels um, give us a, a, an understanding of what the Gospels are. Now, these are called the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the Synoptic Gospels. Gospel comes from the Greek word euangelion, which means good news. So the, the, when, when the apostles wrote the Gospels, they wrote it with the idea that this is good news, the good news of Jesus. And synoptic comes from the word syn, S-Y-N, which means together, and optic, which means seeing, so seeing together. Now, I don't know, if you've read through the, the, the Synoptic Gospels, the first three, you'll notice that they're a lot different than John. John is not organized like them. It doesn't sound like them. He has a whole different approach to Jesus than they do. And so um, it's, they're just different. They're different. And so they're usually put in a category by themselves, whereas John is... is uh, put in his own category. Now, these three cover much of the same ground, viewing the ministry of Jesus in, in the same light and having certain striking, there's certain verbal agreements that, that you can see through them all. They, they report a lot of the same events. There's a lot of, uh, a lot of things that are, same, are the same, which is why they're called the Synoptic Gospels, because they have so much in common. They have so much in common. Now, John, if you read John, um, it's just different. It's, it's just different. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't talk about Jesus the same way they do. John is kind of like a theology of Jesus. He, and in fact, if you look at it, it the whole book is, is organized around seven miracles, okay? And, and he goes at it with these seven miracles, um, and I always say this, and then I think, what a dumb thing to say, but I'm going to say it anyway. It's like, and it's like the miracles, it's like they advance in difficulty. Now, a miracle's a miracle, right? How can one be more difficult than the other? But it starts with, uh, the first miracle is um, changing the water into wine. The seventh miracle is raising Lazarus from the dead. And so there's this, progression of miracles through John. And so 
he doesn't give kind of the, the same kind of eyewit- the same kind of eyewitness that the other three give. It's, it's a little bit different. And you can see that if you, you just read them side by side. All right, now the next thing you see on here is the synoptic problem. How do you explain the differences and the similarities between these three Gospels? All right, they're the same, but they're different. Luke's not the same as Matthew and Mark. Matthew and Mark look a lot alike, but one's longer than the other. So, and there's certain different materials. So how do, you, how do you explain that? Now, let me just say this, because you may not know this, but you have to know that Bible-believing biblical scholars are in the minority. There are all kinds of biblical scholars that aren't even believers, okay? They, they look at the, the Bible as a piece of literature, Okay, so when I was in seminary back in the 70s, okay, if you wanted the the best Hebrew and Old Testament school to go to at that time was the University of Michigan. I hate to say that here, but that's just the facts. Ancient Near Eastern history, Hebrew, and um, studying Old Testament, the... um, the best school at that time, the Harvard of Old Testament studies, was University of Michigan, okay? Um, so, so when we talk about the synoptic problem, you're, you're talking about people oftentimes, and evangelicals too, but people oftentimes looking at the Bible and trying to explain it, all right? And so when we talk about the synoptic problem, some of this stuff is coming from those kinds of scholars and, and evangelical scholars have to wrestle with these things, too. So how do we explain the differences and the similarities? Well, there's a lot of different hypotheses to explain the differences and the similarities. The earliest idea was that Matthew wrote first, okay? And that the other two, Mark and Luke, were dependent on him. They borrowed from him, but they also added their own stuff. And so that's one of the earliest hypotheses. Augustine, the great church father, thought that Mark just abbreviated Matthew, okay? And he said, okay, Matthew says a lot of good stuff, but I'm going to, I'm not going to give as much. Chrysostom, another church father, explained that Mark was shorter because he was writing for Peter. So Mark, you can kind of detect, is, is probably Peter dictating to Mark, and him writing it down, and Chrysostom said that Peter was a man of few words. That's why it's shorter. So there's one answer. Um, some say, no, 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 no. Mark was written first. Matthew and Luke added. Okay, maybe. And then another one, and this was real popular when I was in seminary. Uh, it's called the two-document hypothesis. And this says that Mark was written first, but there was another source called Q, another document that they called Q, and it's called Q because the German word for source starts with the letter Q. And Matthew and Luke supposedly drew from Mark for some of their material, but then they also drew from Q, another source, and they got their material from that. There's only one problem with that. You know what it is? No one's ever found a document called No one's ever found this document. It's just, no one's ever found it. So that also tells you something. A lot of people just purely speculate in these areas. 
So what do we know? Well, we don't know for sure. We don't, and I don't think there's any way of figuring it out. However, we can be sure this is the word of God, and, and Matthew says his piece, Mark says his, and Luke says his, and that's good enough. Um, so regardless of how you try to explain it, one thing is sure, the Holy Spirit worked in such a way that the gospel writers gave us an accurate account of Jesus. All right? Now, here's something to learn about how the Bible is written. The Bible was not dictated, okay? Uh, Peter and Mark and Matthew and Luke and Paul and the rest of them didn't just sit there and wait and then get a word from God and they write it down. Wait, wait, God, I didn't get that one word. Say that again. That's not how the Bible was written, all right? So let's look at Luke for a moment. Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, all right? Luke 1, 1 through 4. Someone read that. Now, I don't know you well enough yet, but let me just clue you in on something. In our church, we have what we call the LaRue Baptist Volunteer System, and it works like this. I'll say, someone read Luke 1, 1 through 4, all right? And then, like in basketball, I do a five count. And if no one starts reading within five, I just call on somebody. Now, here's the deal. I only know some of your names. I know most of your names. So, All right, Luke 1, 1 through 4. Someone read that. Now, what Luke says here is he did a lot of research. You notice that? He went and interviewed people and talked to people who had observed it or written about it, and he wrote down, uh, he got all that, like a historical researcher, he got all of that and put it together into the Gospel of Luke. So, for example, do you ever wonder how Luke knew about what Mary thought? You remember those passages in the Nativity where it says, and Mary pondered these things? How did he know that? How do you think he knew that? He talked to her. He went to her. How did a guy, Luke, who we know is a Gentile a physician, how did he know what went on in Bethlehem, right? He knew because he, he interviewed the people who were there or the people that, that were eyewitnesses. And so he did, his, he did his research, he organized the material, he wrote it down. And so one of the things it tells us is whenever you read scripture, note, God does not interfere with the personality or the personal um, experiences or the personal efforts of the writers. So when you read Paul, he sounds different than Peter, doesn't he? And when you read uh, Paul, he sounds different than John. And as you look at that, you see different styles, you see different ways of saying things, and yet 
That's because God, they did the work. They did that work and they wrote out of their experiences and their personalities. However, notice what 2 Peter chapter 1 says. Let's turn there. 2 Peter chapter 1. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 19. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So Luke, in all his research, in all his thinking, in all of him saying, I'll use this but not that, and eliminating this and putting this in and putting it all down, through that whole process, the Holy Spirit was at work superintending him so that he would write exactly what God wanted him to write. All right? And so we know that what we have in the Gospels, even though there are differences in viewpoints and differences in in personality, we know that God superintended them in some miraculous way so that they wrote down exactly what God wanted us to hear. All right? Now, what are the reasons for the production of the Gospels? That is, why do we have them? Why were they ever made? Why were they produced? Well, here's where you have to use your imagination a little bit. Imagine that you're a Christian living in the city of Antioch about 35 years after Jesus has been raised from the dead and ascended to heaven, okay? And the apostles have visited your congregation. The apostles pass through every once in a while, and they tell you these stories of Jesus, the truths that they have because they lived with him and they were taught by him. And you've been taught by them in your congregational meetings and, and as their epistles have circulated through, okay? Um, you've learned what you ought to believe and how you ought to live in light of what Jesus has said. But now something's arrived that's entirely different than an epistle. It's a gospel. It's a writing that is the complete story of Jesus. It's a book that tells you about what he taught and what he did, okay? It tells you who he is and what he did and why he did it. It tells you all the things you've always wanted to know about Jesus, okay? That's, that's how the Gospels were introduced. That's how they were introduced. Now, that's the same situation we're in. Right? We want to know about Jesus. How do we know about him? Well, we go to the Gospels. We go to those, those parts of the Bible that tell us directly about him. Well, here's the first thing to remember, because I think we forget this a lot. You need to understand that the Gospels were written to the church. All right? The Gospels were written to the church. I don't know if you know this, but most of the Gospels, most of the synoptic, the synoptic Gospels, most of them were written after the epistles, okay? They came along after the epistles, not before. Not like they're arranged in our Bible, except for John. In, in my view, John might be the last book of the New Testament written or next to the last book of the New Testament that was written, okay? And so the Gospels were written after the epistles. 
And by that time, the church needed an authentic apostolic witness to Jesus. They had it verbally, right? They had the stories. They had those all verbally and orally. Okay, like, you know what oral tradition is? It's those kinds of stories that are passed down by word of mouth and they're not written down. Well, that's what they had um, that's what they had with Jesus. Now, Gentiles from all over the world are coming to faith, and they need to know about Jesus. And so the apostles, uh, the, the information had to get out there quicker than just an apostle visiting and telling the stories, and then you remembering them and passing them on to the new converts. What you read in the Gospels then are not, um, they were meant for all these people coming into the church. So they weren't meant merely for Jewish audiences, Okay. Um, but they are intended to reveal to the church the Lord of the church and the law of the church in the Gospels. Um, And so what we have to see then is that these are written to the church and they have to be understood that way. They're not just written to tell you, yeah, the Jews didn't, didn't like this part of Jesus and so they did that. And the Jews... For example, the Pharisees. We hear a lot about the Pharisees, right, in the Gospels. Well, why is that written? It isn't just written to tell you Pharisees were bad guys. It was to show you, it was also to show you wrong responses to Jesus, and you've got to be careful that you don't have the same responses. It was written to the church, okay? And that's what we have to see. They're not just histories. Now, what's God's intention for the Gospels? They don't intend to give you merely a history or a biography of Jesus. That's not, that's not what they're intended to do. They're not exhaustive biographies of Jesus. There is nothing, except for Luke, there's very, very little about Jesus' childhood and youth, right? We all would love to know what Jesus did, right? Did he work with his father, Joseph? Did he? You know, um, did he build houses and fences and all that kind of stuff? We don't know, right? We don't know any of that. We'd love to know that kind of stuff, but it's not there. So they're not exhaustive biographies of Jesus. But what they are, are histories with a purpose. They're histories with a purpose. The men who wrote these have been radically transformed by Jesus, and they wrote with the purpose of introducing people to Jesus, um, to give them something they desperately needed, which may explain why there's not much about his childhood there. Now, Luke does include some things about his childhood, but he does it for a purpose, not just to say, you know, Jesus was kind of this independent-minded kid, and at 12 years old, he stayed in Jerusalem, and his parents went home, and they were along the road for three days, and before they realized he wasn't there, right? You remember that story in Luke chapter 2? Luke doesn't just tell us that so we think Jesus is this independent-minded 12-year-old who can handle himself in the big city, right? He had a purpose, and when you read it, the purpose of telling that little story from his childhood is to show you that even at 12, Jesus was aware who he was and how he could handle, how he knew the Old Testament and how he could interact with the rabbis. So you see... It's there for a purpose. Now, that doesn't mean that the writers play with the facts or distort the history in order to prove something. They're still accurate, but they have a purpose. Okay? So, let's say someone writes a history of the United 
the history of the revolution, okay, of our revolution, the American uh, War for Independence. And they want to emphasize the point of liberty. And so they write with that in mind. Now, they can write and give us all the facts. They have a delivered purpose in mind. But we all know that there was a whole lot more involved in the War of Independence than just we want liberty. There was economic factors involved. There were legal factors involved. There are all kinds of different things. But this, this writer wants to emphasize this particular part of it. Now, it doesn't mean he distorts the facts. It means he's writing with a particular purpose in mind. And so the gospel writers write an orderly account of Jesus with a purpose in mind. With a purpose in mind. And each gospel writer has his own purpose in mind. So even though Matthew, Mark, and Luke may cover the same events and talk about the same things, and some of them in, in, include things that aren't in the others, the reason is they're, they're putting material in and excluding others because they have a particular purpose in mind. I've got this purpose in mind, and so I want to communicate that to you. And so each has his own purpose. All right? Now, other scriptures also tell us what God intends to do with the Gospels, okay? So let's look at um, Hebrews chapter 1. Now, some other scriptures weigh in to tell us why the Gospels are written, all right? Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, I'm, I'm sorry, Hebrews 1, verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power, and so on. What does he do? He's a revelation of God. Jesus is a revelation of God. If you want to know what God is like, go to the Gospels. Jesus is the exact representation of God. He, he is God, and so if you want to know God and what he's like, then go to the Gospels. You see what Jesus is like? That's the way God is. Look at 1 Peter 2.23. Someone read 1 Peter 2.23. All right, Peter tells us a number of places to follow his example. Here's the perfect man. If you want to know how to live, then look, look to Jesus in the Gospels. He's the perfect pattern, particularly, particularly living in a hostile environment. How do you respond to that? And Jesus is the perfect example of that. Notice what, what uh, Caleb just read. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. What does it mean when people just tear you up, spit you out, take you apart verbally? What are you supposed to do? Well, what did Jesus do? That's the way you're supposed to be. Okay? Um, look at 1 Timothy chapter 1. 
First Timothy chapter one, verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal and invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Jesus is the Savior. Okay? Jesus is the Savior. So that's another reason why the Gospels were written, to show us Jesus is Savior. And so each, one had his, each writer had his purpose. This is, what, this is what Jesus came to do. Okay? Uh, the other scriptures weigh in, telling us why the Gospels were written. And then I think another thing we have to see is that you have to understand that the church is the messianic community today. It is the people of God. So far from being a book about Jesus and his rocky relationship with the Jews, far from being that, it intended to reveal to you the Lord of the church and um, how we as God's people are supposed to live how we're supposed to live, okay? Um, now, let's talk about Matthew. Let's just survey the others before we get to uh, um, before we get to Mark. Let's just kind of look a little bit about at, at just the basic themes of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, okay? Matthew was one of the original apostles, right? And in his book, he identifies himself as a tax collector. And chapter 9 of his book is where we find out that he was a tax collector. He was one of the worst kinds of sinners of that day. But notice, because of his occupation, which was what? A tax collector, right? He had an orderly mind. He knew how to organize things, and God used that. And Jesus transformed him, so he used those abilities in service to him. Um, he was with the other apostles, of course, when the Holy Spirit descended on the day of Pentecost. When was Matthew's gospel written? Now, again, here's where scholars, they like to get in debates about exactly when was this written, what year. Some would say between A.D. 80 and 100. That's pretty late. Others say between 50 and 65. Um, Here's something to remember whenever you're reading about the New Testament. The destruction of the temple in A.D. 70 is an incredibly important event. It would be to us like if somebody nuked New York City, right? If someone nuked New York City, there'd be, there'd, that, that's a gigantic major thing in our thinking. And so um, if someone were writing uh, something and they never mentioned New York, you might think that was written before. New York was destroyed, right? Because afterwards, it's a big deal. Same with the temple being destroyed in A.D. 70. Um, there's, no, uh, it, there's no mention of the destruction of the temple. And uh, uh, so it probably, was be, it probably was written before then. Before then. And also, Irenaeus, who is an early church father, says that Matthew was written who is closer to that time, says Matthew wrote during the time of Nero, which would have been from 54 to 68 AD. So, somewhere in that category. 
um, is is uh, is when Matthew uh, wrote. Did I skip over something here? No. Um, okay. What about Mark? Um, Luke, or I should say this about Matthew. Matthew's theme seems to be um, Jesus as the king, as the Messiah, okay? Now, what about Mark? Mark presents Jesus as the suffering servant, the suffering servant king. So when you read Isaiah 42, um, Isaiah, uh, Isaiah 52 and 53, um, I think it's Isaiah 49. In Isaiah, you see this character. He's called a servant of God, the suffering servant of God. And um, it's and when you read those suffering servant passages, it seems like not only is he suffering, but he's also a king. And so Mark presents Jesus as the suffering servant king, which is Isaiah's designation for the Messiah. So Mark comes across with Jesus as the suffering servant king. Um, He seems to have written to Roman believers, particularly Gentiles. Um, He demonstrates the humanity of Christ more than the other writers. He emphasizes that a lot more. And he focuses, interesting, he focuses more on the activities of Jesus more than his teachings. So he wants us to learn things about Jesus more by what he did than by what he said. All right? And so he, he says more about what Jesus did. And he particularly emphasizes the death of Jesus. And he also, more than the others, conveys the emotions of Jesus. Okay? Now this is the shortest of the Gospels. He has nothing about Jesus' ancestry or birth. He omits the Sermon on the Mount, unlike the other two. And some of the lengthy discourses that Jesus has are not in his Gospel. So his is a a very short, simple one. And it's interesting that I've seen that a lot of people who want to introduce uh, others to the Gospels usually go to Mark because it's the simplest, it's the shortest, and people like to like that better. Now, who wrote it? Who wrote it? John Mark wrote it. A man by the name of John Mark wrote it. Um, so John's his first name. His last name is Mark. Like my last name is Pasma, his was Mark. He was a close companion of Peter. And so most think this is Peter's gospel that he gave to Mark as he related it to Mark. Now, what do we know about him? And we don't have to look up everything, so I'll just give you these references. I don't think they're in your notes. He he was the cousin of Barnabas. Colossians chapter 4, verse 10. In Colossians 4, 10, John Mark, is identified as a cousin of Barnabas. And you remember the story about Peter being in jail, right? And he's released, and he leaves, and he goes to uh, a Mary's house where all the believers are praying. That's where John Mark was. So if you look at Acts chapter 12, verses 12 and 25, you'll see that Mark is in that assembly. And Mary was probably his mother. Okay, now this isn't Jesus' Mary, mother. This is another Mary. And 
he is her son. So the son of the Mary who had the prayer meeting when they were praying for Peter and the cousin of Barnabas, the great encourager. Okay? The Barnabas that was known as the great encourager. You read about him in the book of Acts. Now, in Acts chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas um, go on Paul's first missionary journey. Okay? And they take along John Mark. They take him along. Okay? He's going with him on the mission. And about halfway through, he can't take it, John Mark can't take it, and he goes home. He goes home. All right? Now when you come to Acts 15, you read about Mark again. Only this time, um, Paul and Barnabas are, are in a huge argument about whether they should take John Mark on the second journey, second missionary journey. Paul and this dialogue's not in there, but Paul is against taking John Mark. This guy messed up, he bailed out, he's not good for missions, no. And Barnabas, who's also known as what? The son of encouragement, right? He's saying, no, we ought to take this guy. You know, give him another chance. And Paul says, absolutely not. And Barnabas is going, come on. And so it says, they couldn't agree on it, so Barnabas took Mark and went his way on another missionary journey, right? And Paul took Silas and went, out, went a different way. So by the way, there were two missionaries going out. We only know about Paul. Luke only records Paul's mission. But the point is that Barnabas took Mark with him. Even though Paul didn't want him. Paul said, I don't want this guy. Barnabas said, we need to take him. And so they, they couldn't come to an agreement. And so they just went their separate ways. Now, here's the important part. Mark was restored to ministry. It's fascinating to see this. Um, okay, number one. In Colossians chapter 4, verse 10, where he's identified as the cousin of Barnabas, Paul is saying to the Colossians, right, I want you to welcome Mark. So something's happened between Paul saying, no, he's not good material, I'm not going to take him. Something's happened where now he's saying to the Colossians, you welcome Mark. I want you to welcome Mark. In Philemon 24, Paul lists Mark as a fellow worker with him. And then lastly, the very last letter he wrote, right before he died, Paul tells Timothy to bring Mark to him because he is useful to me for ministry. So it's kind of cool to see the writer of this gospel and his, the little bit that we know, how he was an absolute failure as a missionary to the point where the Apostle Paul at the end of his life is saying, bring Mark, because he's useful to the ministry. It's fascinating to see that. When I was in seminary, I had a whole sermon around Mark. We, we had that assignment. Um, we don't know the date of Mark's gospel because it depends on whether you believe Matthew's dependent on Mark, he'd be first, or Mark's dependent on Matthew, he'd be second. So somewhere probably in the 50s, okay? In the 50s. What about Luke? We'll talk about him next week. My time is up. So next week we'll talk about the historical and theological themes of, of Luke, okay?
Okay, if you can, keep your notes. If you can't, we'll have some more next week. All right, very good. Why don't we pray and uh, get prepared for worship. Father, thank you for, again, for the time we've had together. We pray that this would prove profitable for your people here. Pray that they would understand more of this book. And Lord, as we begin to look at the content of Mark, we pray that you would encourage us and help us to see um, Jesus in a way we've not seen him before. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.